Neil, what would you say if I told you that Princess Alice, the queen's mother-in-law, was a deaf nun who sold all her riches to help the poor, saved many people's lives during the Holocaust, and enjoyed smoking cigarettes and playing cards? I think that's the only kind of nun there should be. (laughs) (laughs) They should all be that way. Hi, Neil, and hello to our wonderful pod friends. And Sandra is happy because we got an episode about the royals. You can tell every time we start one. Yes, and especially today as the story of Princess Alice of Battenberg is such an amazing one. And I am so surprised and disappointed at the same time that it's not a well-known story. But we're trying to change that because this woman was a saint and they should be making Hollywood movies about her, really. They really should. She was an extraordinary lady. Uh, She was born congenitally deaf and was considered slow because of that, which is not really the case. On the contrary, she was extremely smart. I mean, she could read lips in three foreign languages by the time she was like eight years old. Yeah, and later on, she was on the front lines tending to the wounded in World War II. She got married and had five children, one of which would become the queen's husband, Prince Philip. And her life was difficult. She loved charity work, though, and helping refugees. But she ended up being sterilized, basically, by Sigmund Freud himself as treatment for mental illness. And then, despite the trauma, she went on and saved many Jewish people during the Holocaust by hiding them in their home. Her daughters were married to Nazis, by the way. And she almost got caught by the Gestapo. And she became a nun, founded a Greek nursing order of nuns named Christian Sisterhood of Martha and Mary, sold all her jewelry and riches, and lived a very very frugal life, helping the poor, especially women. Yeah, and all of this, despite the fact that she had the option on the table right in front of her to live a life of luxury as a princess. Exactly. That's what's fascinating. She was truly a kind person who chose to dedicate her life to helping others. So Princess Victoria Alice Elizabeth Julia Marie of Battenberg was the mother of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, and mother-in-law of Queen Elizabeth II. A great-granddaughter of Queen Victoria, Alice was born in Windsor Castle on February 25th, 1885, and grew up in Germany, Britain, and Malta. A Hessian princess by birth, she was a member of the Battenberg family, a morganatic branch of the House Hess-Darmstadt. What does morganatic mean? Morganatic marriage, sometimes called a left-handed marriage. You know, like those left-handed cigarettes we like is a marriage between people (laughs) of unequal social rank, which in the context of royalty or other inherited title prevents the principal's position or privileges from being passed to the spouse or any children born out of their marriage as well. So basically what this means is that Battenbergs, even though they could not be kings or queens, were still royalty and lived as such. Uh, They were treated as such and had all the riches and privileges of royalty. And the girls could actually become queens by marriage to an actual king. But, you know, all this is fairly complicated. Got it, I think. Okay, so Alice was born in the tapestry room at Windsor Castle in the presence of her great-grandmother, Queen Victoria. She was the eldest child of Prince Louis of Battenberg and his wife, Princess Victoria of Hesse and by Rhine. Her three younger siblings, Louise, George, and Louis, 
later became Queen of Sweden, Marquess of Milford Haven, and Earl Mountbatten of Burma, respectively. Aha, uh-huh. so I think I get what the whole morganatic marriage thing means. Like, the men in the Battenberg line could not be kings, but the women, by marriage, could become queens. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. And Princess Alice, even though she was born in Windsor Castle, was christened in Darmstadt, Germany, just two months later. And like many royals, she had six godparents. That's a lot of godparents, right? Especially since these these people are the least likely to get run over by a car, which is the main thing of a godparent, right? It's like if something tragic happens to your parents, then they are obligated to raise you. But these people live the most guarded lives on the planet for centuries so yeah i do think they had some other fears though i mean traditionally it kind of makes sense in a way in the olden times if a royal house was let's say removed from power they wanted to ensure that the bloodline goes on and the children would escape and be taken care of by some other royals so the roles of godparents were actually quite important that way in time they could return and claim the throne you know and all these sets of godparents were safety nets and also they had great significance because the more important the godparents the more important the baby basically and look princess alice had queen victoria herself as a godmother so uh, the other godparents were her three surviving grandparents, Grand Duke Louis IV of Hesse, Prince Alexander of Hesse and Byron, and Julia, Princess of Battenberg. Her maternal aunt, Grand Duchess Elizabeth Feodorovna of Russia, and her maternal aunt, Princess Marie of Urbach-Schonberg. And Princess Alice spent her childhood years between Darmstadt, London, Jugendheim, and Malta. And her father was a naval officer and was stationed there occasionally. And at some point, her mother noticed that Alice was having trouble talking and she was not learning to talk as fast as other toddlers. And her pronunciation was off. Eventually, she was diagnosed with congenital deafness. It was actually her grandmother, Princess Battenberg, who identified the problem and took her to see an ear specialist. And little Alice turned out to be very smart, actually, despite the stigma attached to her illness. She learned to lip read and speak in German, English, and French by the time she was eight years old. So later, after her engagement, she learned to speak Greek as well. That is absolutely amazing. I mean, it's hard enough to learn a foreign language without any hearing disability and to learn three languages by the time you're eight is a massive achievement. I mean, I bet she was the smartest kid in the family, actually. I think this says a lot about her as a person, too. You know, the determination, even as a young child, to prove everyone wrong and dispel the false belief that was quite prevalent at the time, you know, that deaf people are less intelligent and so on, which is obviously complete BS. Yes. I mean, they made us take four semesters of a foreign language in college, and I assure you that I speak almost no French. So I had to Google the (laughs) the line in French that I put in the last episode. So her early years were spent with her royal relatives. She was educated privately, most likely because of her disability. Uh, She was a bridesmaid at the wedding of the Duke of York, later King George V, and married a tech in 1893. A few weeks before her 16th birthday, she attended the funeral of Queen Victoria in St. George's Chapel, Windsor Castle, and shortly after, she was confirmed in the Anglican faith. 
Yeah, that's an important detail, the Anglican faith. We will see that later in life she renounces that faith, which is, I think, partly the reason why the British royal family hasn't been too open about Princess Alice. I mean, isn't it weird that so very few people even know she existed, even though her life story is absolutely incredible and so positive? I think you're right. And I think this is one of those things that just gets lost to history, is that Religious affiliation was a much bigger deal even a hundred years ago. And the further back you go, the bigger a deal it was. And that doesn't yes. really apply to our modern age. But in any case, as much as you like the royals, and I know you're a monarchist, uh, let's face it, especially back then, they probably did not want anybody related by blood and with a disability to be in the public eye. It was not good PR for them, no matter how amazing that person was, especially if she had renounced the church and converted to Greek Orthodoxy. Now, I agree. That's what I'm saying. I mean, let's not forget there are the Queen's cousins, a few of them, two sisters, actually first cousins of Her Majesty, princesses born with mental disabilities, and they were hidden from the public eye and stuck in an asylum until their death. And their names are Catherine and Nerissa Baus-Lyon, third and fifth daughters of the Queen's favorite elder brother. They call him Uncle Jock. They were both locked up in Earlswood Institution for Mental Defectives. And the Queen and her sister Margaret thought they were deceased actually, and they had no idea that these two cousins were alive. The official document stated that Nerissa had died in 1940 and Catherine in 1961. In fact, I think Nerissa died like just a few years ago. This in is, and or yeah, something. this is, I don't, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is one of the things that interested me when I've watched documentaries about the royals uh, that have come out recently, like the Netflix one about the current queen, is how much goes on without the monarch's knowledge just by handlers and managers uh, that do terrible things without even telling them that they're being done? Yes. And I mean, you can't, you know, just like a state leader, right? Like right. you can't really know everything that happens. You have so many people under you, so you can't really know what they do every moment of the day and what wrong things they might be doing. But Allegedly, the Queen's sister, Margaret, had someone who tracked the cousins down at the asylum and discovered it wasn't only the two sisters, there are three more royal relatives, so five in total, hidden from the public eye. And Nerissa's grave near the hospital was discovered by journalists. It was like this pauper's grave with a plastic marker with her name and a serial number. I mean, shameful. And by the way, Nerissa looked almost identical to the queen. Like you could see they are first cousins. There are some photos of her online. This is like a man in the iron mask story, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I guess. That's why I feel like the royal family dropped the ball very badly in these cases. I get why they might have thought that's the best course of action. You don't want people talking about, you know, inbreeding and tainted blood, so to speak, because it weakens the monarchy. But yeah. I don't know. This is not how you deal no, with No, it's stuff. not the way to treat people, particularly family, uh, all other things aside. But the truth is, all the royal houses of Europe uh, are related. They've been marrying each other for centuries. So it's only, you know, basic science that this is going to happen. Exactly. But anyway, Princess Alice... Our hero for this episode met Prince Andrew of Greece and Denmark. He was known as Andrea within the family. I thought that was cute. And he was the fourth son of King George I of Greece and Olga Konstantinovna of Russia. And they met while she was in London for King Edward VII's coronation in 1902. 
and they married in a civil ceremony on October 6, 1903 at Darmstadt. The following day, there were two religious marriage ceremonies, one Lutheran in the Evangelical Castle Church and one Greek Orthodox in the Russian chapel on the Matilden Hall. And Princess Alice adopted the name of her husband, becoming Princess Andrew. That's why in some materials and articles, you'll find her referred to as Andrew, not Alice. But we're going to keep calling her Alice because it's less confusing. The bride and groom were closely related to the ruling houses of the United Kingdom, Germany, Russia, Denmark, and Greece. And their wedding was one of the great gatherings of the descendants of Queen Victoria and Christian IX of Denmark, held before World War I. Prince and Princess Andrew had five children, all of whom later had children of their own. And I would add to this, Princess Alice was a very beautiful woman. She looked gorgeous in these pictures. Yes, she was, wasn't she? She was so beautiful inside and out. And immediately after her marriage, Princess Alice became involved in charity work while her husband, Prince Andrew, continued his career in the military. In 1908, she visited Russia for the wedding of Grand Duchess Marie of Russia and Prince William of Sweden. And while there, she talked with her aunt, Grand Duchess Elizaveta Feodorovna, who was at the time working on plans for the foundation of a religious order of nurses. Princess Alice attended the laying of the foundation stone for her aunt's new church. And later that year, the Grand Duchess began giving away her possessions in preparation for a more spiritual life. So it's clear that Elizaveta was a great inspiration for Alice and a great influence on her already wonderful character. But when they returned to Greece, things were not going well politically. There was social unrest as the Athens government had refused to support the parliament in Crete, which had called for a union of Crete with the Greek mainland. Um, and Crete at the time was still nominally part of the Ottoman Empire. So a group of frustrated officers formed a Greek nationalist military league that eventually led to Prince Andrew's resignation from the army and the rise to power of Eleftherios Venizelos, who became a prominent leader of the Greek liberation movement. And it is now in 1912-1913, when the Balkan Wars happen and then World War I starts, uh, that a succession of events turn into a series of life crises for Princess Alice's family. Initially, Prince Andrew, her husband, was reinstated in the army and Princess Alice acted as a nurse, assisting at operations and setting up field hospitals, work for which King George V awarded her the Royal Red Cross in 1913. So she's already doing so much good. And during World War I, her brother-in-law, King Constantine of Greece, followed the neutrality policy despite the democratically elected government of Venizelos supporting the Allies. And we'll see how that plays out. Princess Alice and her children were forced to shelter in the palace cellars during the bombardment of Athens by the French. And by June 1917, the king's neutrality policy had become so untenable that Alice and other members of the Greek royal family were forced into exile when her brother-in-law abdicated. So for the next few years, most of the Greek royal family lived in Switzerland. It is said that her son, Prince Philip, who would later become Queen Elizabeth's husband, was taken out of the country in an orange crate. The global war effectively ended much of the political power of Europe's dynasties. The naval career of her father had collapsed at the beginning of the war in the face of anti-German sentiment in Britain. At the request of King George V, he relinquished the Hessian title Prince of Battenberg 
and the style of Serene Highness on 14th of July, 1917, and anglicized the family name to Mountbatten. And yes, the following day, the king made him Marquess of Milford Haven in the peerage of the United Kingdom. But look, this was a massive loss for Alice's family. They pretty much had to give up their identity, who they were, you know, their name, with no fault of their own. In uh, Game of Thrones terms, bend the knee is what they had to do. And it only gets worse. The following year, two of her aunts, Empress Alexandra and the Grand Duchess Elizaveta, her favorite aunt, were murdered by the Bolsheviks after the Russian Revolution. Moreover, at the end of the war, the Russian, German, and Austro-Hungarian empires had fallen, so no more empires. The whole world order had been rearranged, and Princess Alice's uncle, Ernest Louis, Grand Duke of Hesse, was deposed. So all bad news, and this was a very hard time for Alice and her entire family. In 1920, King Constantine of Greece was restored to power, so Alice and her family decided to go back. But it wasn't meant to be for very long. They lived in Corfu for a while, in Monrepos, a villa inherited by Prince Andrew on his father's assassination in 1913. But after the defeat of the Hellenic army in the Greco-Turkish War, a revolutionary committee under the leadership of colonels seized power and forced King Constantine into exile once again. So basically, all of this ended in a coup. Yes, and Alice's husband, Prince Andrew, who had served as commander of the Second Army Corps during the war, was arrested. Several former ministers and generals arrested at the same time were executed following a very brief trial. At this point, the crown, you know, so the representatives there, the British diplomats, started to really get worried and assumed that Prince Andrew was also in mortal danger, which, you know, was true. And after a show trial, he was sentenced to banishment, thank goodness. So Prince Andrew and Princess Alice and their children fled Greece yet again aboard the British cruiser HMS Calypso under the protection of the British naval attaché, Commander General Talbot. So again, this family goes through yet another traumatic experience. And I think it's fair to say that Princess Alice kept things together. You know, she's taking care of the kids. She was sort of the glue that held the family in one piece. Exactly. So what happened next in regard to her mental health is not only to be expected, but so understandable. Anyway, after they barely managed to flee Greece, the family settled in a small house loaned to them by Princess Marie Bonaparte of Greece and Denmark on the outskirts of Paris. And here, Princess Alice became active in charity organizations for the Greek refugees, and she became deeply religious. And in October 1928, she converted to the Greek Orthodox Church. And it's pretty clear that at this time, she was struggling. That winter, she translated into English her husband's defense of his actions during the Greco-Turkish War. And soon after that, her mental health started declining. It was all connected with uh, religious ideation to some degree. Yes, in 1930, Princess Alice began to behave weirdly and claimed to be in contact with Buddha and Jesus Christ. And she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia first by Thomas Ross, a psychiatrist who specialized in shell shock. We call it PTSD today. And subsequently by Maurice Craig, who treated the future King George VI before he had speech therapy. So unsuccessfully treated him since he had no mental illness, he just had a bad stutter. That was a great movie, by the way. I liked it. Even though I'm not a royal person, I thought the, the King's, King's speech. Yeah, the King's speech was a good movie. So these guys might have not gotten the diagnosis right, 
But regardless of what we think, the diagnosis was confirmed later on at Ernst Simmel's sanatorium in Berlin. And unfortunately, Princess Alice was forcibly removed from her family and placed in a sanatorium in Switzerland. And just a small digression, you know, when we say sanatoriums, these were mental asylums, okay? It was a famous and well-respected institution with several celebrity patients, including Václav Nijinsky, the ballet dancer and choreographer, but it still was a mental asylum, okay? And here, Dr. Binswanger also diagnosed the princess with schizophrenia. Binswanger is stuck in my mind. There's a glass company in America named Binswanger. Really? Yes, there is. I know this. Because I had uh, the glass broken in the front of my house uh, once by the guy cutting the grass. He uh, like shot a rock from the lawnmower into the window. And somebody told me to call Benzwanger. And I didn't even know what that was. Like, I looked at them funny. And this person said, don't anger, call Benzwanger. And I don't know if that's like their their motto or their little <laughs> catchphrase or what, or that guy just made like it up on slogan? the spot. Yes, I don't know if that's their slogan or not. If he made it up, that's a very good joke. And if I he was did, gonna say yes. <laughs> if he did not make it up, then uh, that's a good joke on their part. So I like it either way. Yes. In any case, here comes the crazy part. And we're getting to our boy Sigmund Freud once again, beloved by some and hated by many more. Yes, I feel like I'm torn. But look, we made a really interesting episode about the Freuds and Marilyn Monroe. Anna Freud actually treated Marilyn unsuccessfully as Marilyn ended up committing suicide after another woman did the same thing under Anna Freud's care. And we explained it all there. It's a crazy story. But speaking of crazy stories, before we get to the part where Freud himself sterilizes Princess Alice, let's remind our listeners about our premium episodes. Yes, uh, we do have premium episodes, two per month, in addition to our four free ones. So there's already a pretty nice collection of exclusive premium content available for all you guys. Yes, and you can get these premium episodes by going to dubiouspot.com and clicking on the Become a Patron button at the top of the page or by clicking the link in the episode notes. So that way you can support us and the podcast because we are a little independent podcast and we have no team of editors, sound engineers and so on. It's just us and we work on our episodes whenever we have the time on nights and weekends mostly. And not only do you get the premium episodes, but you also get our public episodes ad-free as well. Now, back to Freud and Princess Alice. So Dr. Benzwanger and Simmel both consulted our boy Sigmund Freud, who believed that Alice's delusions were the result of sexual frustration and hysteria, because of course he did. Everything he ever said was a sexual delusion. Yes, look, don't even get me started with the hysteria thing. I lose my shit when I hear hysteria and I gotta do my little rant here. Hysteria does not really, you know, exist per se. It was an invented illness to describe women who had the slightest depression or any kind of mental issues. And a lot of the times it was a term used to just put women in their place. Like she complained about something, oh, hysteria. She was sad over something, oh, hysteria. She's emotional hysteria. I mean, it's just insane. Hysteria comes from the Greek word hystera, meaning uterus. Originally, it was believed that hysteria and hysterical symptoms were caused by a defect in the womb, and thus only women could become hysterical. And that's why I get so upset when I hear this. This was a term that was used to oppress women for centuries. Why don't you just stop being so hysterical and continue with your story? <laughs> <laughs> I see 
want you to eat there, okay? And you're not well, going to leave me like hanging like a piece of meat for all of the women in our audience to beat on either. I agree with you, but you know this by now. I know, I know. I mean, so, I suppose our regular listeners do too. I mean, these sorts of things, we have like this such rigid separation of the sexes and how they're supposed to be. A lot of which goes back to religious you know, ideals too. And it's just, yes. you know, people are not taught to just sit down and talk to each other and listen to each other and say what you feel. And if they did, the world would be a better place. Don't we all agree? Yes. Look at you, our little Freud here, a good Freud. I have a humanities degree. I would be very stupid if I did not understand the basic concepts of it, I think. You are you are very smart and very valuable, and I'm so happy to have you now. Can we go on with the podcast before the people leave? Okay, like, so no more <laughs> hysteria. Huh? People... <laughs> yes, I'm done with my hysterics for the day. So why don't you tell people what happened next? Since you don't have a uterus and hysteria can't affect you, I mean... <laughs> yes, yes. Uh... Which, by the way, we both know it's untrue because you're more hysterical at times than a TV housewife. That's <laughs> why I'm sympathetic to the complaints of women about this stuff is because, yes... I'm an emotional boy, just like Tony Soprano. That's what we were talking about before this episode <laughs> yes, started. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you love pets so much, just like he does, yeah? Okay, so brace yourselves, because here we go with some Freud. Freud recommended, quote, X-raying her ovaries in order to kill off her libido and induce early menopause. So, excuse me if I believe that they were all wrong. She was not schizophrenic. She just had a bit of mental depression, maybe a mental breakdown. Exactly. So they basically sterilized her. Freud sterilized her, which I don't even know where to start to describe how messed up that is to treat a mental condition by sterilization. I mean, it's complete nonsense. It's outrageous. And Princess Alice protested. She said that she was saying she only had a bad few weeks and repeatedly tried to leave the asylum, but to no avail because the treatment, quote-unquote, went on and Alice almost managed to escape one time. And just as she was boarding a train to freedom, she was caught and brought back. Yes, it's a terrible story. And during this time, she and Prince Andrew drifted apart. Which is to be expected. Uh, her daughters were all married to German princes in 1930 and 1931, and she did not attend any of their weddings, most likely because the family did not want her to. Prince Philip, her son, who was just a boy, went to the United Kingdom to stay with his uncles, uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten and George Mountbatten, and his grandmother, the Dowager Marchioness of Milford Haven. Princess Alice remained at Kreuzlingen for two more years, but after a brief stay at a clinic in northern Italy, she was finally released and began a lonely, kind of almost incognito existence in Central Europe. Yes, and she maintained contact only with her mother, but broke off ties to the rest of her family until the end of 1936. The thing is, she would have loved to be with her children, especially Philip, who was a teenager by now, but it was her husband and her family who were probably against it. In 1937, her daughter Cecile, her son-in-law and two of her grandchildren were killed in a plane crash in Austin. Cecile was notoriously afraid of flying, right? And she was heavily pregnant when she boarded that plane. This is another crazy story. She literally gave birth in the air in the plane and then the plane crashed and they found the body of the newly born in the wreckage, the baby. I, 
it's it's insane. I don't this know. makes me think. I have to throw an aviation question, and I do not know the answer to. Since I am the uh, podcast official aviation person, there I'm was the no only su- official aviation person in our podcast. Yes. You're the only one who can fly a plane. So yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, there was no such thing as a pressurized airplane in 1937, and I wonder if there was any medical advice against very late-term pregnant women flying in unpressurized airplanes because of that. I don't know. There may have been. I have no idea. I, I, I don't know, but I guess I guess she had to fly. I don't know where they're going or whatever, but I think she had to be on that flight for a good reason. I yes, don't think... I'm sure they did, but uh, it's just another tragic thing. So I'm, I'm going to have to... It's crazy. Can you yes. imagine being afraid of flying? You're so afraid of flying. So you finally, you have to, you're very pregnant. You get on that plane, you give birth in the air, and then the plane crashes. So Princess Alice and Prince Andrew met for the first time in six years at their daughter's and granddaughter's funeral. And Prince Philip and Lord Louis Mountbatten also attended. And Alice started rebuilding the bond with her family. But in 1938, she returned to Athens alone to work with the poor while living in a two-bedroom flat near the Benaki Museum. And then World War II started. And this was a difficult period for Prince Alice as well. I mean, we got to think about it. Her sons-in-law were Nazi officers fighting for Germany, and her own son was now fighting for the British in the Royal Navy. Her cousin, Prince Victor, uh, was German ambassador in Greece until the occupation of Athens by the German forces in April 1941. And she and her sister-in-law, the Grand Duchess Elena Vladimir... <laughs> <laughs> Vladimirovna of Russia lived in Athens during the war, while most of the Greek royal family remained in exile in South Africa. Yes, and Alice moved out of her small flat into her brother-in-law George's three-story house in the center of Athens, and she worked for the Red Cross, helped organize soup kitchens for the starving, and even flew into Sweden to bring back medical supplies. And she managed to pull that off on the pretext of visiting her sister Louise, who was married to the crown prince. She also organized two shelters for orphaned and lost children and a nursing circuit for poor neighborhoods. And I can't refrain anymore at the risk of pissing off some people. If any woman should be known as a saint, it is Princess Alice of Battenberg, okay? Not Mother Theresa, who despite a very good PR story created to make her look like a kind, caring person, was a psycho and a mean bitch. I was wondering how long (laughs) it would be in this episode before you uh, could not help yourself and got into this. Because, well, let's be honest, this is basically true. Mother Teresa is not who people think she was based on her carefully crafted public image. We might do an episode about all that, but in a nutshell, Mother Teresa ran hospitals like prisons, particularly cruel and unhygienic. She was a very mean-spirited person and just generally harsh with people. She was rude and very sort of Catholic nun, private school type strict, you know, borderline obsessive with regulations and praying schedules and all of her rules. And she even withheld painkillers from dying patients with the intent of getting them to go through their preordained and uh, purifying Catholic guilt suffering. 
Yes, I mean, she glorified pain and suffering, not for herself, though, okay, just for the poor who are in her care, because she thought suffering brought them closer to Jesus. She didn't believe in pain medication. I mean, and this takes the gold. Her nuns refused to install an elevator for the disabled in their homeless shelter in New York to make them suffer because, you know, having paraplegic people crawling up the stairs is what Jesus would have wanted. I mean, I don't even want to. I get so mad. It's absolutely ridiculous. So, you know, that brings me back to my often made point of the world is fallen by your words. You can't do anything to change it, no matter how many people you make suffer. So basically, Mother Teresa was a hypocrite through all of this stuff, who provided substandard care at her hospices while using world-class treatments for herself uh, as she got sick when she was older. And she misused donations, too. But, you know, the Catholic Church has deep pockets and concocted this saint image of this woman, just like they buried the child abuse cases that are so prevalent in their church and all that other stuff. Yes, Teresa did many horrible things, and that's why I think that if there's a mother, it should be Mother Alice, our princess who was born deaf, went through so many tragedies throughout her life, was institutionalized and sterilized and medically abused, and that didn't break her spirit and her faith. She really helped people from the time she was young until her death, risking her own life as well, as we'll see next. Yeah, so back to World War II. The occupying forces apparently presumed that Princess Alice was pro-German, since one of her sons-in-law was a member of the SS and another had been retired out of the German army in 1940 after an injury in France. Nonetheless, when visited by a German general who asked her, is there anything I can do for you? Her reply to him was, yeah, take your troops out of my country. <laughs> so badass! I love her! I love, 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 love her. And guess what she does next? Something good, for sure, because I can't seem to find one thing wrong that she's done in her whole life. Yes, after the fall of Italian dictator Benito Mussolini in September 1943, the German army occupied Athens, where a minority of Greek Jews had sought refuge. The majority, about 60,000 out of a total population of 75,000, had already been deported to Nazi concentration camps, where all but 2,000 died. And during this period, Princess Alice hid Jewish widow Rachel Cohen and two of her five children who sought to evade the Gestapo and deportation to the death camps. Earlier in 1913, Rachel's husband, Haimaki Cohen, had dated King George I of Greece, and in return, King George had offered him any service that he could perform should Cohen ever need it. And years later, when the deportations and extermination campaigns began, Cohen's son remembered this and appealed to Princess Alice, who along with Princess Nicholas, were the only two princesses remaining in Greece. And Princess Alice honored the king's promise and saved the Cohen family, risking her own life. And honestly, she didn't have any obligation to do so, right? And after she saved them, she continued to do the same for many other Jewish families. At some point, the Gestapo caught wind of something amiss, and they questioned her, but she pretended to be mentally incapacitated on account of her being deaf. She played them, and they thought that she was not able to do what the allegations said she was doing. So, to them, she seemed to be just slow. So, kind of genius on her part to evade yes. them in that way. Yes, super genius. She used something that was used against her her whole life 
against the bad people. I mean, I love her. What Mother Teresa? Mother Alice is my saint and I'm not even religious at all. So, you know, she sheltered Jewish refugees and helped them escape death. And for this, she is recognized as righteous among the nations by Israel Holocaust Memorial Institution Yad Vashem. But her own struggle and suffering was not over. When Athens was liberated in October 1944, Harold Macmillan, a British statesman, visited Princess Alice and described her as living in a humble, not to say somewhat squalid, condition. In a letter to her son, she admitted that in the last week before liberation, she had no food except bread and butter and no meat for several months. And by early December, the situation in Athens was not much improved. Yes, communist guerrillas were fighting the British for control of the capital. And as the fighting continued, Princess Alice was informed that her husband had died. And this was a massive blow for her as she was hoping for a post-war reunion and for the family to be together again. I mean, they had not seen each other since 1939. Every time something happens that seems positive... It seems like it turns into tragedy for these people. They are the unluckiest royals I think I've ever heard of, uh, besides the Middle Eastern princesses that, uh, you know, wind up uh, hauled off of their yacht and back to Dubai, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, we did an episode about that. So this is true, yeah, but she was so kind. That's the thing. I mean, look, during the fighting, to the dismay of the British, she insisted on walking the streets, distributing rations to policemen and children in contravention of the curfew order and also to the women. And it was really dangerous out there. There were lights out murderers, they were called, or blackout murderers. And bad people really taking advantage of the rules that after dusk, no light was to be on so that the enemy planes can't see where the city is and bomb it. And a lot of bad things were happening. So she was taken to the streets even in the evenings. And I do feel that here they might not be telling the whole story, the historians, because, you know, there were a lot of women who had children and had to become sex workers at that time just to keep their families going and food on the table and so on. And I would say that, you know, the only reason to go out after dark and give food to people would be to reach these women because you could give food to children and policemen during the day. So I think Princess Alice was actually helping these women, right? This yes. is my, there is no historical evidence, but that would be the only reason that she would go out after curfew. And when told that she might have been struck by a stray bullet or attacked by someone, she replied, they tell me that you don't hear the shot that kills you. And in any case, I'm deaf. So why worry about that? <laughs> I mean, look, I just love her, man. She's amazing. Yeah, this reminds me. So, since we did movie time last week, there was a film uh, about Jack the Ripper in which a sex worker got pregnant by a prince in the UK, and that was kind of wrapped up in this fictional retelling of the Jack the Ripper story as a sort of conspiracy that involved the royals. And I always wondered, where do they get this idea from? And I think this is it. This uh, the story of yes. just... You know, any any woman who is uh, inconvenient because of some royal predicament, you just throw her in a sanitarium. And uh, I think this was probably the inspiration for that. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned Jack the Ripper because some of these uh, blackout murderers, they were actually Jack the Ripper copycats. Yes. So that's actually interesting that you mentioned that. And 
As I said, I don't see another reason for Princess Alice to go out at night to give food and help to other people. I think she was doing it for the women, for the sex workers, which is even more laudable because back then it was such a taboo thing. So this just speaks to how open-minded and really caring and kind she was, right? Yes, absolutely. And brave to do that as well. I mean, going out by yourself in the middle of the night in the dark... And, you know, you know all this is going on, but she's like, meh, it's not like I've never seen a bad day before. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, Um, courageous. Really courageous. In any case, Princess Alice returned to the United Kingdom in April of 1947 to attend the wedding of her only son, Philip, to then Princess Elizabeth, now the Queen. She had some of her remaining jewels used in Princess Elizabeth's engagement ring, So whatever jewels she hadn't sold to help the poor, she gifted to the current queen. Yes, and on the day of the wedding, her son was created Duke of Edinburgh by George VI. And for the wedding ceremony, Princess Alice sat at the head of her family on the north side of Westminster Abbey, opposite the king, Queen Elizabeth and Queen Mary. And it was decided not to invite her daughters, you know, Philip's sisters, to the wedding because of anti-German sentiment in Britain following World War II. And, you know, I totally agree. I mean, they were married to SS officers, so... Mm. Yeah, probably a good call. And in January 1949, Princess Alice founded a nursing order of Greek Orthodox nuns, the Christian Sisterhood of Martha and Mary. It was designed to function after the convent that her aunt and role model, the Grand Duchess Elizaveta, had created in Russia in 1909. Princess Alice established a home for the order in a little town north of Athens. She went on two royal tours of the United States in 1950 and 1952 in an effort to raise funds for the order, all in benefit to the poor. Her mother was flabbergasted, but admittedly proud of Alice and her actions, and she was reported to have said, what can you say about a nun who smokes and plays canasta? (laughs) (laughs) You can't say that. She's the best person I've ever heard of, and the badass woman, and that's what you can say. I mean, and yes, she was a chain smoker, which makes me love her even more. I wonder if she also smoked Virginia Slim menthols. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) And also... I am not smoking cigarettes anymore. I'm just vaping, just for the record. So Yes, we joke about this, people, but uh, we have given up the cigarettes, so don't yes, start. Yes. It's terrible. Don't. It's horrible. Yes, it's a bad habit. It's it, like it literally stinks. It literally. does. So. It's like I didn't believe that you know, when I was a cigarette smoker earlier before it became so taboo. And people would say, oh, you could smell those things down the block. It's like, whatever. You're just, you're giving me a hard time. It's like, no. Exactly. No, but it does. After you quit, you can smell them down the block. Yes. Yes. In any case, Alice's daughter-in-law became queen of the Commonwealth realms in 1952. And Princess Alice attended her coronation in June of 1953, wearing a pretty modest two-tone gray dress and wimple in the style of her nun's habit. However, the order eventually failed through a lack of suitable applicants and most likely because of the sort of church political stuff designed to make a profit while her order was designed to give 
everything to the poor. Yes, I mean, as far as I can tell, Princess Alice was, I mean, she was religious, but she was using religion to do good. I mean, let's not forget she was also very much into Eastern religions and traditions, Buddhism especially. So I think that's another reason why her order failed in the end, because she was not obsessed with indoctrinated people and banning women from having abortions. She was not affiliated to any big religious institutions, and she did not have their backing either because she wasn't a good fit for them. Like you said, she wanted to help the poor, refugees, those who were different, the sex workers, those who were marginalized. So she wasn't working for filling her coffers and those of the church. She was working really for those who needed the money and the help. And, you know, all big organized religions are doing this for profit. It's a business. And she didn't fit that pattern. We got to figure out how to turn the podcast into a cult and then we'll be well on our way to our Gulf Stream. <laughs> Stream, it's very bad for the environment. And not only that, it costs a million dollars a year just to have it, even if it never moves. Can you imagine? Right now, I think our goals are too far away. Right now, let's focus on paying the server. If <laughs> <Yes. you can. laughs> I think uh, I think you're right. Yes, uh, that she was genuinely good, rather than what we would consider nowadays as religious. In 1960, she visited India at the invitation of activist Rajkumari Amrit Kaur, who had been impressed by Alice's interest in Indian religious thought. That was her last trip abroad, actually, before returning to Greece and then back to the United Kingdom. Yes, her health was by now declining rapidly. She was 75 years old. So Princess Alice left Greece for the last time following the colonel's coup in April 1967. This was a right-wing military organization slash dictatorship type of thing who ruled Greece until 74. But anyway, due to the coup, Queen Elizabeth II and the Duke of Edinburgh invited Princess Alice to reside permanently at Buckingham Palace in London for safety. Despite unfounded rumors of senility later in life, Princess Alice remained lucid, but physically frail, and she passed away at Buckingham Palace on December 5th, 1969. She left no possessions, as she had given everything she ever had in life away to the poor. Initially, her remains were placed in the royal crypt in St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle, but before she died, she had expressed her wish to be buried at the convent of St. Mary Magdalene, in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, near her beloved aunt, Elizabetha, who was made, by the way, a Russian Orthodox saint. And I think Princess Alice should probably be a saint as well. Yes, agreed. The story goes that her daughter, Princess of Hanover, complained that Jerusalem would be too far away for them to visit her grave. But Princess Alice said, nonsense, there's a perfectly good bus service. <laughs> I just love her. I mean, her wish became reality on August 3rd, uh, 1988, when her remains were transferred to her final resting place in a crypt below the church in Jerusalem. Yeah. And in 1994, Princess Alice's two surviving children, the Duke of Edinburgh and Princess George of Hanover, went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, to witness a ceremony honoring her for having hidden Jewish people in her house in Athens during the Second World War. Prince Philip said that of his mother's sheltering of persecuted Jews, I suspect that it never occurred to her that her action was in any way special. She was a person with a deep religious faith, and she would have considered it to be a perfectly natural human reaction 
to any fellow beings in distress. Yes, and in 2010, the Princess Alice was posthumously named a hero of the Holocaust by the British government. Isn't this the most amazing story the world has never heard of? It's an amazing life history. I mean, everybody should aspire to, you know, have a laundry list of things that they have accomplished by the time they're gone. And uh, I have failed miserably, I think, but, uh, well, I'm just joking. I've done a few things here and there, but it's just one amazing story after another. And despite tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, she just gets up the next day and does the right thing over and over again. Yes, and she just chose this life. She could have lived a plush life, right? I mean, she was a princess. It's This is why she's even more admirable than regular people helping other people, because I don't know of many people who sell everything they have, you know, and just go out at night during wartime when they could have been killed. She's just an amazing person. She was. Yes. Well, I'm going to take this opportunity and introduce a new thing in our episodes, the Dubimeter, short for dubious meter, because we usually tell stories of dubious people or dubious events or any dubious stuff, right? And I'm thinking it would be good to have a scale to measure the dubiousness of things. It's (laughs) way more elegant if you say Dubimeter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Dubimeter. Okay, whatever, yes. So So, what are are you going to put your thermometer to in this episode, exactly? It's called the dubimeter, Neil, okay? So, (laughs) look, how dubious is that most people, most people never heard the story of Princess Alice, mostly because the royals were not crazy about the non-Anglican, suffering from mental illness part, being deaf, and being buried in Jerusalem, and not with the rest of the family, and so on. On a scale from 1 to 10, how dubious is that? It's pretty high up there. I mean, we're going to say, like, about an 8.5 to a 9. Yeah, I think so, to a 9, yes. So, dubimeter for the Princess Alice story is a 9, because, look, I can understand why the royals didn't want this story told, but there's nothing in this woman's life that was shameful or needed covering up. And people can tell us if they agree or not on our social media. We are a dubious pod on all platforms. Hashtag dubimeter. <laughs> dubimeter. <laughs> okay, don't forget, if you like our content, Become a patron on dubiouspod.com or by clicking on the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to recommend us to your friends and family, too. Thank you for listening and see you next time. 